are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Tonight's scripture reading will be from John 13, 36 through 14, 14. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, it's good to see you guys. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. If we haven't had the chance to meet before, we'd love to be able to uh, say hello afterwards. So please come up and and do that before you head out today. Uh, We're going to be diving into John 13 and 14 as Tom just read. And so before we do that, though, I'd just love to, to ask the Lord to bless our time. So would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks for this opportunity to to gather together. God, we give you thanks for the fact that you have called us to be a family with one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. Not something we could achieve on our own, but God, something you've done for us in and through Christ. And God, we have a lot going on in our lives, a lot going on in the world right now. Our minds swirling with different thoughts and feelings. God, I pray that right now you would allow us some solace, a chance to focus in on what you would have to say to us. God, give us clarity and focus by the power of your spirit. Now we pray. Help us to hear from you today. 
God, I pray that you would fuel our faith. I pray that you would foster new faith for our good and for your glory. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd help us to, to hear, to see, to understand what you want to communicate to us today so that as we go back out into the world, God, that we'd be equipped and encouraged to walk faithfully with you and testify to your grace and your goodness and your love given to us in and through Jesus. So we pray this all in, in Christ's name now. Amen. Well, last weekend, I, was, uh, I was, had the opportunity to go out and uh, play golf with my brother and my dad. And we were playing, it was a nice day, and we, as we were kind of looking around at this particular course, we were commenting on the fact that this, at this particular location, you can often see wild animals walking around. You know, the average deer, but there's a bald eagle flew over us while we were out there. Sometimes you see wild turkeys walking around while you're out playing on the course. Well, as we wrapped up a particular hole, we, we, my brother looked up and said, hey, oh, there's a deer right there. And I said, where? And he was pointing, you know, right there. I looked and didn't see this deer that he apparently saw. And he was like, it's right there. It's right in front of you. It's right there. And I kept looking, saying, I, I don't see this deer that you're pointing at. It's like, it's right there by the green. It's right in front of you. So finally, I looked and said, oh, oh, there it is. I see it. Have you ever had those experiences or moments where somebody's pointing something out to you and they say it's right there, it's right in front of your face, but for whatever reason, you just can't see it? Well, as we come to our text this morning, we see, or this morning, this afternoon, we see something similar happen. The disciples, Jesus' followers, have been with him now for about three years. These men that have been walking closely with him and living life with him and learning from him and hearing from him. And they've been searching for and looking for life and hope in the midst of the world they find themselves in, yet they're missing something, something that's right in front of them, rather someone who is right in front of them. But once again, the gentle and loving heart of Jesus is on display as he says to them again, look here, look right here, look at me. When he said, what he says here in this text that we're going to look at this afternoon is a significant statement. It's so significant that it sets Christianity apart from any other faith in the entire world. Now, this text and this sermon may at different points feel a little bit more theological, like we're talking about big ideas and big topics and things that you maybe would expect to find in a, in a textbook of sorts. But I don't want us to, to see that or hear that this afternoon and think that that doesn't mean that this matters to us, that it's not important for our lives now. Because what we believe about God, what our theology is, impacts how we live life. And we're going to see that in our text today. So whether you're walking faithfully with Jesus, or maybe you find yourself right now and you're you're struggling in your faith, that you're not really sure if Jesus is who he says he is, or maybe you're here this afternoon because you're checking out who Jesus is, and God has you on a faith journey right now where you're learning more about him and what it means to know and follow him. But no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey this afternoon, my hope for all of us today is that we'll take a step. We'll take a step towards life and not death. A step towards light and not darkness. A step towards Jesus and not the world and its empty promises. So with that, let's dive into, jump into John 13 and 14. And may we see Jesus more clearly today. Now, a lot has happened in the story that John is telling to us here, that he's talking about the life of Jesus. And what we've immediately seen is that Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet. He's washed them in an an effort to show the extent and the magnitude of his love. Right after that, Judas, one of the 12 followers of his, one of his 12 disciples who spent these last three years with Jesus, has just left. 
Then he's gone to go and betray Jesus. And Jesus has given his remaining disciples and you, if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, he's given us this new command to follow. A command that says, love one another just as I have loved you. But as we come to our text today, we see that the disciples seem to be distracted. There's something going on in their minds. There's something going on in their hearts. And they're not quite, it doesn't seem like they're quite paying attention to what Jesus has just said to them. Look at verse 36 in John 13. The beginning of verse 36, it says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Now, Peter seems to just kind of blow right past what Jesus has just said. I mean, he just said, this is a new commandment that I give to you. And Peter doesn't comment about that. He doesn't ask any questions about that. He goes back to what Jesus said in verse 33, that he's leaving and they can't go with him. Peter blows past the instruction Jesus gives to this statement that Jesus has made. And Peter, likely saying what everybody else is thinking, is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus, hold on a second. What did you say? Where, where is it that you're going? And why can't we go with you? And Jesus responds by basically repeating what he said in verse 33, but adds, you can't follow me now, but you can follow me later. To which our friend presumptuous Peter replies, well, why can't I follow you now? Like, it's almost like he's implying, like, is where you're going really that hard, Jesus, that I can't go with you? Like, I'm, I'm strong in faith, and I love you, Jesus, and I want to walk with you so I can do anything. I'll even lay my life down for you, Jesus. He makes this bold statement of allegiance. And maybe that's in response to the fact that just before this, Jesus told this group of people that someone within that group is going to betray Jesus. So Peter's kind of bowing up a little bit, like, not me. It's not going to be me. I'll lay my life down for you. I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. And that sounds good. It sounds noble. There's good intention behind Peter's declaration. But as one scholar says, sadly, good intentions in a secure room after good food are far less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. And you, we sometimes act that way. We maybe get fired up after we hear a sermon preached. We get fired up after community group or reading a particular book that fuels our faith and fervor for Christ, ready to go take on the world for Jesus. We're amped up and we're, we're ready to go and share the gospel with people and walk faithfully with him. But then we leave the room in the quiet and the comfortable nature of that place. And we're confronted with sometimes a smack in the face of the reality of the world we find ourselves in, a world that's full of struggles, a life that's has lots of distractions to it. And it's, it's hard for us in the midst of that to stay strong in faith, to stay strong in our fervor for Christ. Well, Jesus gets that. And Jesus knows Peter's heart. But he also knows Peter's weakness. And so he tells Peter and the others the sobering reality. Look at verse 38. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter, the reality is, as noble as your declaration is, as full of what it seems like you have faith in this moment, the reality is when everything comes to bear on you, you're not going to lay down your life for me. You're going to actually flat out deny me. Now, this sucks the air out of the room. I mean, this is Peter. Peter. 
And Jesus looks him in the eyes with this group of men around them. And he says, no, 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 you're not going to lay down your life. You're not going to even keep following me. You're going to deny me. It sucks the air out of the room. And there's no recorded response here from Peter or any of the other disciples. And maybe it's because John didn't write down the response. Or maybe it's because Peter is so floored and so flabbergasted that he leaves him speechless. He doesn't know what to say. But the good shepherd, Jesus, uses this as an opportunity, an opportunity to speak to their understandable uncertainty, an opportunity to speak to their understandable apprehension with what lies in front of them. And he does so in a gentle, kind, compassionate way. It's important for us to think about how troubled these men would be, how distressed these disciples are in this moment. Think about all the things they've just heard Jesus say and do. Someone's going to betray me. I'm going somewhere that you can't follow. And Peter, you're going to deny me. I mean, that would leave them in a place that's understandably kind of upsetting for them and and causes some anxiety and worry within within them. And these are men who have given up everything to follow Jesus. And now he's saying all of these kinds of things to them, things that they weren't expecting. And some of my kids, I have four kids, some of them at different points in life have had uh, some level of separation anxiety. Maybe if you've had kids or been around kids, you know what I'm talking about, where they're fine with you, but when someone else holds them or you walk out of the room, they get upset and they get nervous and sometimes they start crying and they don't want anybody else but mom and dad. There's some anxiety that rises up within the separation of what they feel comfortable with. Well, the disciples are experiencing some level of separation anxiety here at the thought of Jesus not being with them any longer. They don't get it. They don't understand. They're confused. They're threatened by the idea of Jesus departing. But Jesus knows how they're feeling. He knows how they're feeling. And you know what? He knows how you're feeling in the midst of the struggles you find yourself in. Do you ever find yourself in a similar place where your heart is troubled, where you feel weak in faith? where you're not sure what God's up to at any point in time, and you're kind of wondering, it seems like, God, you've left me, you're distant from me. What in the world are you possibly doing? So how does Jesus respond to this? What does Jesus do? Look at chapter 14, verse 1, the beginning. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. I love that. He doesn't tell them to get over it. Jesus doesn't come and say, guys, come on, I've been talking about this for a long time. You just need to get over it. It's going to be okay. No, he seeks to comfort their troubled hearts. But he doesn't comfort them with empty and shallow platitudes. No, he gives them a truth that's rooted in something more substantial. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, the word believe here is a command. It's, It's calling us to do something. But this isn't about just a mental assent to believe information or facts about God or about Christ. The biblical sense of belief is this idea of relational trust, a personal trust, not with kind of willpower like Peter seems to assert, like I can do this on my own, but a faith in who God is, a desperate faith of clinging to Jesus, of clinging to the Father. And he's going to show us in a few moments how belief in God the Father and belief in Jesus the Son go together. But now he tells something amazing. He tells them something amazing and it's, it's full of compassion and care and concern for them. He says to them, I'm leaving, 
but I will come again. Look at verses two and three. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Man, I love this picture of what Jesus is showing us here, this metaphor that he's giving to us, this reality that he's trying to share with these disciples in an effort to comfort their troubled hearts. Jesus says, yes, listen, I am leaving, but I'm not leaving without purpose. I'm not leaving without intention. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to go prepare a place for you and all of my disciples, every follower of mine, everyone who has been and will be redeemed by me. But this place that I go to prepare for you, it's not a bunch of separate dwelling places. It's not a bunch of separate houses like we'll all be in the same neighborhood together. No, he says, I'm going to prepare rooms in the same house, my father's house. I love the imagery of this. There's a a family element to this. We're all going to be living under the same big roof together. In Jesus' house, in his father's house, we'll be with one another and with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. As Revelation 21 says, the dwelling place of God will be with man, with humanity, the redeemed humanity, when Jesus comes again to make all things new. But unlike our homes, we can't all, nobody in this room can say, hey, everybody come live at my house. I've got plenty of space. No, unlike our houses that have a shortage of space, there is no shortage of space in the Father's house for all whom Jesus saves. And it's because of that that we can take heart. It's because of that that in the midst of our troubled hearts, like the disciples, when we're unsure or uncertain about what God might be up to in our lives, we can take heart because Jesus says, I have a place for you. That even though Jesus is leaving his 11 closest disciples, even though he's not physically present with us right now, we know, look down at verse 18, that he won't leave you as an orphan. But he will come again and he'll bring you all the way home. But I love that. That before Christ you are not a people, but in Christ you are now God's people. Before Christ you're an orphan, you're separated from God, you have no family connection to the Father, but God brings you into his family. He doesn't just welcome you into the edge of his kingdom saying you got by by the skin of your teeth. No, he opens up the doors and brings you into his house to sit at his table to have a meal with him and see him as your father and you as his child. We can take heart. Jesus says, I go and I prepare this place for you and I will come again to bring you all the way home. And what glorious hope of future grace that you and I have if we're in Christ. His disciples don't know everything that's going on. They're not sure about what's happening. But Jesus uses this to tell them and show them that they don't need to have troubled hearts. He tells them in verse 3, they know the way to where he's going. It isn't the mystery that they think it is. But even after Jesus shares this this with them, they still don't quite get it. Verse 4, Thomas asks, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? In his mind, Thomas is, Thomas is thinking, this is like if somebody says to you, hey, I want you to meet me there, but doesn't tell you where there is, and doesn't give you any directions or an address to punch into your phone so that your phone can tell you which way to turn. But that'd be frustrating to you, right? Like, hey, meet me there at five o'clock. You got any more information? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Where is there? That's how Thomas is perceiving what Jesus has just said to him. But this gets to the heart of the matter. Not just for them, but for anyone who wants to spend an eternity with God and not separated from him. 
What Jesus says in response to Thomas is one of the most significant statements in all of the Bible. One of the most significant and important statements in all of Scripture. Look at verse 6. In response to Thomas, it says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus has made multiple I am statements in the midst of the Gospel of John. He has at least one more to make, but this is one of those statements. He's saying, I am, I am who you need. Now, I would guess a lot of us are familiar with this text. Some of you probably even have it memorized, and maybe for some of you, you've never heard it before. But no matter your familiarity with it, I think it's important for us to make sure we understand what Jesus is communicating here, because it has eternal ramifications for you. Eternal ramifications. Remember the question Jesus is answering. He's answering the question, how do I get to the Father's house? How do I get to God? His answer, in short, is the way to get to God is by him and through him and in him. Jesus is the way. Not in the sense of Jesus is a trailblazer, like he's going out in front of everybody saying, follow after me and just follow the way that I go. No, Jesus is the path. He is the way to get to the Father. He is the means, and as we'll see, he's the end as well. Jesus is the truth. He embodies the supreme and final revelation of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says that God has spoken at many times in many ways through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. If we want to know who God is, we look to Jesus. We see the truth of who he is in him. In Colossians chapter 1, we see that the fullness of God was pleased to find its dwelling in Christ. Jesus is the life. He's the one, John 1 and John 5 says, has life in himself. Jesus gives life. He called called, uh, Lazarus back from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. And it's only because Jesus is the truth, it's only because Jesus is the life that he can be the way. Not a way. The way. So the culture that you and I find ourselves in likes to think, we live in a world right now, we live in a culture that's very spiritual. We like to think, they like to put forward the idea that there are many paths to God. There are many routes that you can take to get to God. Again, it's like if you pull up a map on your phone, oftentimes it gives you multiple routes to the same place. This one's going to take 20 minutes. This one will take 15 minutes. This one will take 12 minutes, but you have to pay a toll. You get to pick. It all goes to the same place, but which one are you going to choose? And we like to think, our culture likes to think, that's the way it is with God. We can pick and choose which path will get me to that final destination. Or we say, well, Jesus is the best way to go, but you need to add on a few things to that. You need to make sure that you're worshiping on the right day, that you're eating the right kind of food, that you're doing this kind of exercise. You need these kind of things in your life. Kind of Jesus plus something else will get you to where you want to go. We have to see what Jesus is saying here. He's making it abundantly clear for us. There are no shortcuts. There are no alternative routes or means to get to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. It's Jesus plus nothing. Now, why is that the case? Why would Jesus make such a statement like this? Why would we be talking about this in this way? Why is Jesus the only way to get to God? Why can't we get there some other 
weather. We have to remember, or maybe for some of us hearing this for the first time, understanding it for the first time, that all of us are born into this world separated from God. We're born into this world separated from God. But we aren't born into this world separated from God because God's playing some kind of uh, cosmic game of hide and seek. God isn't hiding from us. He's not difficult for us to find. The reason that we're separated from God is because we've run away from him in rebellion. We're born into this world asserting our own will. We want to be the Lord of our own life. We say, God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I want to be in charge of me. So there's separation now between God and humanity. Our rebellion against God is treason. It's what we call sin. We can't be in relationship with a holy God when we throw him off and we have no desire for him. But that leaves this chasm between us and God now. But it's not a chasm where we're on one side and God is on the other side as if we're looking at each other in the eyes and all we need is just a little footbridge to get across from one side to the other side as if we're on equal footing. Now, the chasm that stands between you and I, apart from Christ, is an eternal chasm of infinite height and depth. That God is high and lifted up. He's holy and majestic and perfect and almighty and unending and unchanging in every way, shape, and form. And you and I, in our rebellion, continue to sink deeper and deeper away from God. There's no way for you to make your way up to where God is and who he is. He's transcended. He's high and lifted up. And we are eternally in debt and in need of rescue out of that. Your sin and my sin is super serious. It's not just a few little mistakes here and there. It is treason against God and it can't be fixed or remedied by good behavior. It can't be fixed or remedied by religious ritual. You are dead in your sin. There's no spiritual band-aids that fix death. There's no good behavior or actions that you can put on your life as a band-aid to fix that thing. You are dead. You need new spiritual life. But Jesus makes a way. Jesus is the way. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 say, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. See, it's in this moment right now with his disciples who are nervous and anxious, unsure of what's to come, that Jesus is heading to that cross to be that remedy, to pay the penalty, the ransom for our sin with his own life, dying on a cross as a substitute for sinners like you and like me. Listen, sometimes when we hear something like this of John 14, 6, it's, it's called the exclusivity of Christ. This idea that Jesus is the only way. There's no other way for you or anyone else in the entire world to be reconciled to God apart from Christ. We can hear this idea of the exclusivity of Christ and think that doesn't sound right. It sounds mean. It sounds arrogant. How could you say that Jesus is the only way? Brothers and sisters, friends, this isn't arrogant. It's not mean. It's grace to us. It's graced us. Nothing else will fix your problem. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will work. Nothing else will remedy your biggest problem that you are dead in your sin and cannot overcome that on your own apart from a perfect Savior. It's like somebody diagnosing a disease in your life and you saying, I don't want to take the only remedy for that disease. I want to go my own way and find my own solution to this. No, this is the only solution to your greatest sickness your spiritual death in order to have spiritual life. If you want to know God, 
If you want to get to the Father, it's by way of the Son. It's by way of Jesus. That's why he says what he does in verse 7. If you had known me, you would know the Father. And now you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is the one who reveals God to us, who reveals the Father to us. Now in all this, Jesus making this big statement like this, the disciples, they still don't seem to get it. Look at verse 8. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus is saying, come to me. It's, it's come to me. If you want to come to the Father, you come through me. And Philip's like, cool, but just show us God. We'll be good. So Jesus responds, verses 9 through 11. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. Philip, you've spent all this time with me, and you still don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, Jesus isn't saying that he and the Father are one, like Jesus is putting on different costumes or masks, like he's switching from one mode to another mode, or he's a shape-shifter. No, he is one with the Father in, in nature and in character and in essence. There is one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. In Jesus' whole life, his whole ministry has been to show us God, to reveal God to us. It's why he's come. If we go back to John chapter 1, verses 14 and 18, John 1, 14 says, And the Word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and he dwelt among us. He came to be with us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John chapter one, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. God, the only God, meaning Jesus, who is at the father's side, he has made him known. In other words, Jesus came to explain God to us. The Greek word there is this idea of exegeting God to us. He's taking the meaning of who God is and he's explaining it to us. He's giving it to us. He's showing it to us. If we want to see God, we see it in and through, see him in and through Jesus. That's why the most important question that anyone can ask or answer in their life is who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Jesus isn't a way to God, he's not just a good example. He's not just a good teacher. He is God. And he's the only way to be reconciled and redeemed. The one who lived and died and rose again for you. So do you believe that? Do you believe that is who Jesus is? Listen, if you want to know God, if you want to see God, you know him and you see him in the person and work of Jesus. But can't we all be like Philip sometimes? Even as followers of Christ who placed our faith in Jesus, can't we sometimes act like Philip? Can't we say, well, God, we want more of you? Or if we could just see you, God, if we could just see more of your glory, then I'd be convinced. Then I'd be more holy. And I wouldn't be so distracted and I wouldn't find myself so discouraged. God, if you would just show me more of yourself. But in that, we miss who's right before us. Just like these disciples. 
We miss who's right before us in these words and on these pages. We miss who's right before us, the Holy Spirit dwelling within our heart, the Spirit of Christ. We miss that God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus. All of us need to see Jesus afresh on a daily basis in a world of distractions, coming back to his word, this living and active word, setting our minds and our hearts on what's above, like Colossians 3 tells us, instead of what's on earth. Because it's when we see Jesus rightly that we're able to follow him fully. So let me ask you, even if you know this truth of John 14, 6, do you sometimes act like Philip and kind of say, sounds good, but what else is out there? Are you seeing Jesus? Do you know him or do you just know about him? Are you following him now? For all of us, come to him today. Believe in him anew. May your faith either be fueled if you already have faith or fostered if you don't yet have faith. And begin to follow Christ. And church, the amazing thing is, is that when you believe in Jesus rightly and start to follow him fully, he can and will do amazing things in you and through you. Look at verses 12 through 14. Jesus closes this section by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. See, Jesus is not just a way to God or the way to God in the sense of kind of getting your, your ticket to heaven punched and then kind of going on when you're li- with your life however you want to, living by your own power and your own, for your own purposes. No, when you walk the narrow road that leads to life instead of death, when Jesus is your only hope and you begin to follow him as Lord and follow him as king, everything changes for you. You're no longer dead in your sin, but made alive in Christ. You're no longer captive to the power of sin, but have been set free from that. You're no longer condemned, but love. He works in you to make you more like himself. But Jesus also works through you to make much of himself among your neighbors in the nations. That's what he means by doing greater works than he will do. Jesus is alluding to the power of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to hear more about in the coming weeks. But he's also talking about reach of ministry. He's also talking about having a greater scope and impact. I mean, the works that Jesus does aren't just his miracles. It's his words that come along with that, that he is the word of God that leads to salvation. Every miracle that Jesus did, every physical miracle that he did, always point back to who he is, to validate that he is who he says he is and came to do what he said he came to do. And if we think about it, the greatest miraculous work that any of us can actually see take place in our lives is seeing someone who's spiritually dead become spiritually alive. To be raised from death to life. That's not something we can fabricate or do on our own. It's only a work that God can do. It is a miraculous doing. But this call to doing greater things than even Jesus has done isn't just for the 11 in that room. It's for anyone who believes in him. I mean, think about this. The, the greater work of Christ has, been made, has made its way all the way to you. None of you heard the good news of Christ from the mouth of Jesus himself. None of you heard the, the good work and the grace of God and the gospel from any of these 11 men that were in the room. 
No, they told someone who told someone who told someone who told someone and more people and more people. And that message crossed the ocean and came all the way to your family or to your other friends or to a campus that you heard the gospel on or to a church gathering. We're hearing this message. This greater work has been done because we sit in this room to testify to that. If God has saved you, then this text is already true right before your very eyes. It's amazing to think about the fact that the whole ministry of Jesus is amplified through the ministry of the local church. It's amplified through it. We are preaching the same message, proclaiming the same message that Jesus preached and proclaimed. We're still telling our neighbors and the nations that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Here we are some 2,000 years later doing the same thing. Greater works are being done. It's amazing. Before we run out into the streets, before we go and tell everyone around us, and we should do that, we can't miss the reason that greater things are done. It comes by way of dependent and persistent prayer. Jesus says, you can ask me anything in my name and I will do it. Now, praying in the name of Jesus is not a method for you to name it and claim it. Like, I like that car, Jesus in your name, give me that car. I like that job, Jesus in your name, give me that car. That's not how this works. It's not a name it and claim it. Praying in Jesus' name is about praying in a way that proceeds from faith in Jesus. That you recognize that the only way you're able to even come before the Father and ask him to do anything is because of Jesus. Because he is the way. Praying in Jesus' name is praying in a way that seeks to glorify Jesus, not get glory for yourself. Praying in Jesus' name is praying in a way that's consistent with his character and his will. It's praying, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not my kingdom come, not my will be done. So here's what this means. It, It doesn't mean that God is more inclined to answer your prayer or hear your prayer if you tag on to the end, in Jesus' name I pray. And what it means is is that prayer is effective when you ask in Jesus and desire what Jesus desires. How do you know what Jesus desires? How are you going to know what it is that's going to honor him and glorify him? Here, in his word, he tells you over and over again what it is that he desires. He shows you by his words and his actions what he desires. Jesus desires the fame and the glory of God to extend to the ends of the earth. That Jesus desires that men and women and children from every tribe, every language, and every nation would come to know him and believe in him and follow him because he alone is the way and the truth and the life. So we can pray in Jesus' name in this way. We can pray for revival that our neighbors would come to know him because we believe God wants to save people. We can pray in the name of Christ for for people at the ends of the earth to come to know him who have never known him because he's going to send out more men and women, maybe even some of you from this church, to go to those places. We know God desires to save people so we can pray and plead in the name of Christ that he would do that. Even though Jesus has gone to be with the Father, we are still able to come to him and to see him work in us and through us for his glory, for our good, and for the good of others. And that's exactly what your neighbors need right now. In a world and a culture that promises them peace, in a world and culture that promises security, but tends to leave them wanting, they need Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't show mercy. It doesn't mean that we don't do good works. It doesn't mean we don't 
pursue justice in our culture, but we do all of those things. We do all of those works to testify to our king and his kingdom. We can see him in his words and in the person of Jesus we see. So brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God, it's invading the darkness. It's invading the darkness and we get to be a part of it. We get to be a part of that if we believe in Jesus, that he is who he says he is and has done what he said he came to do. See, when you know the way, you can show the way. When you know Jesus is who he says he is, then you can start to tell people about him. And also when you know the way, you don't need to be anxious or nervous about all that's uncertain around you. You don't need to wander or wonder anymore about how you're going to make it all the way home. No, you don't need to wonder about that and neither do the people around you. Even when everything is swirling about and you are bound up in the unknown, you can come back to who you know. You can come back to who you know. You can come back to Jesus, the anchor of your soul. In the midst of the storms of life and all that's uncertain, you can come back and see when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And you can rest in his grace and rest in his mercy that you have in him now and in the hope that what is to come when he comes again to bring you to his father's house. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's walk in him together and tell of his great name to anyone and everyone that'll listen to us. Amen. We get to come and take communion together now. And this is our first response to the preaching of God's word. It's a wonderful gift of grace as we get to eat and drink, do something physical to remind us of what Jesus did for us. As you eat the bread, it's a picture of Jesus' body broken for you. And as you drink the cup, it's a picture of Jesus' blood shed for you. And so as you eat and drink today, let this earth-shattering reality that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, let that sink in, that it's by his sacrifice for you that you can come to be restored and reconciled to the Father. As you eat and drink today, praise God for his grace upon grace that he has given to you and will continue to give to you. As you eat and drink, may it compel you to go and tell others who do not yet know and who do not yet believe. And if you find yourself this afternoon being someone who doesn't yet know Christ, who hasn't yet trusted in Jesus, we would just ask you not to take communion. But instead, think on what I've said, that Jesus is the only way for you to be reconciled to God. And instead of eating and drinking today, we want you to take Jesus today. That you place your faith in him. And if you have questions about what it means to know Jesus or follow him, please come talk to me afterwards or anybody else that you know here. We'd love to journey with you in that. For those of you that will take it, if you didn't grab the elements on the way in, they're out on the table, out in the lobby, so feel free to go grab those. But I just encourage you on your own time just to pray to give thanks that the gospel made its way to you. And God gave you the gift of faith to trust in Christ, to reconcile you and rescue you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And whenever you're ready, you can eat and drink. And then let's stand and sing together. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that we were lost in our sin. We were alone, orphaned in this world, God, but you saved us, you pursued us, you reconciled us to yourself because Christ came. You didn't just give us a, a map to follow, you sent us a person, you sent us a savior who took on our humanity, who entered into the mess and lived a perfect life and died for us. God, I pray that as we walk out of this room today in the midst of a world and life, that sometimes is crazy, overwhelming, 
Sometimes it feels boring with just the mundane things we're doing. God, would you help us to come back to this truth that our hearts would not be troubled because we know what our future holds for us, that one day we will be in the Father's house seeing our Savior face to face. God, as we wait for that day, I pray that you'd give us just a a zeal to make the name of Christ known among our neighbors and the nations. God, we pray in the name of Christ that you bring revival, that you bring spiritual awakening, that we would see the most miraculous thing that could possibly happen take place before our very eyes, that we would see people cross from death to life. Would you raise up new life in people here in Fairfax? Would you send our church to the ends of the earth to proclaim the name of Jesus? God, we thank you that you are so good and so faithful and so patient, even as we see the compassionate heart of Christ with his disciples who are fumbling right before his very eyes. He continues to entreat them and call them to himself. God, thank you that you do that with us. Help us to do that with one another. We long to see what you're going to do in us and through us, not for our glory, but for yours. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.